Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 32 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek, and I am not about to propose any foolhardy missions to go kidnap dead zombies and bring them back to the South. Why, Steve, I, I don't know what you're talking no, about. No, it's, it's, well, that's not a spoiler. Everyone, no. knew, that. Everyone knew that that was the, the plot <laughs> the plot arc. I just can't believe that anyone would have such a foolish idea. Well, you know, I mean, if we just if we want to watch, you know, a zombie, you know, on on television, we should have just watched the president's speech last night. Ouch! Ouch! Oh, he's coming out hot, Steve. You're fired <laughs> up today. I can see. I'm just saying, like, I mean, was that was that the was that not the least energetic speech you've ever seen on primetime television <laughs> by a sitting president of the United States? I confess, I did not watch this live. I just ah. read the transcript afterwards. You were, you were too busy watching the Little League World Series. Uh, you know, I actually saw, I saw the most amazing catch. Did you see Giant the kid? Browns preseason. Did no? Did you see the kid that went over the wall catching the? So, the, so I have a problem saving with the this. home run. I, I saw I saw the catch where he jumped over the wall. Yeah, you know. that was great. Okay, um, that's a home run. The rules are wrong. If you if you have to leave the field of play, right? If you had to if, complete, the so if catch, he got there super fast, jumped over the fence and then waited and caught it like a fan, if he was that's still, a if he, right. So how if, if right if he jumps over the fence and catches it, how's it any different if he leaves his Wait, feet? But like was this kid? I think the test should be you leave your feet. That's fine if you can jump over and rob the home but run. But he lost contact with the playing surface. He was uh, he was over the fence with the ball in his glove. But had he touched the ground before he caught it? Had he touched touch which ground? The it, outside it, ground. Uh, da, 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 da. No, he okay. caught the ball before he landed. I think there's your bright line. If he, as long as you haven't yet made contact with the ground on the far side. So 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 he can stand on top of the wall, jump off the wall. Catch. I, I just think this is the problem with the rules <laughs> of baseball. I think I think if the ball if the ball lands, including in the player's glove. Look at it this way. Suppose that he had jumped off, right? Suppose the same play happens, but his glove fell off. Okay. With the ball still in the glove, that's a home run. My dear listeners, this is the kind of quality parsing of, of categorical distinctions that you can count on on the, the National, National Security, Security Law Podcast. Podcast. I'm just saying, like, congrats to him for a great catch. Austin Jackson made a catch like that earlier this year in the majors. I, I'm just, listen, I'm of the view, it harkens back to, um, I guess it's the second or third inning of Game 7 of the 1986 World Series, where Daryl <laughs> Strawberry tried to go over the fence to rob a homer from, I think, Rich Straw, Deadman. Man. And the ball bounces in his glove and then out. And ever since I've been scandalized. Well, I, I think that uh, you know this this podcast is known for our our friendly, uh, good humor disagreement. And, and, and here, here you go. <laughs> uh, so we have some uh, national security stuff to chat about. I think we've got four topics picked four out. Four topics. Uh, what should we start with? Uh, the Trump speech. The, the, the amazing, the amazingly scintillating speech last night in Afghanistan. So I, I Trump, Trump Trump regains his presidential mojo as some. Ridiculous, stupid journalist put on Twitter. Oh, okay. Well, we'll see about that. I, I do think there's some interesting uh, questions about law and policy Indeed. on how that conflict is being fought. And so we'll talk about that. And then we'll turn our attention to uh, uh, an article that Charlie Savage and Adam Goldman had in the New York Times last Friday, uh, indicating that three weeks ago, the president was just about to sign a Guantanamo detention executive order. The third one that, that we've talked about. Yeah, this is, this keeps coming up, if you've been listening all along, uh, that the uh, change in personnel caused that plan to, to come unraveled. And now there's we get a description of certain ideas that are bouncing about. So we'll engage with that. Uh, and then, Steve, what's this business about enjoining the president? Well, before we do that, right, we have to briefly recap the D.C. Circuit's brief opinion in the Scott Sillman oh, recusal yeah, case. Oh, yeah, right, was, which we raised the other day, but we never told people what we, happened. We actually got a little bit of credit on, on online for actually like previewing that case when no one else was paying attention. Right. And, and also some harassment for not actually having closed the circle by telling people so here we are. how it comes. And then we're going to spend a few minutes talking about the sort of nerdy Fed courts topic du jour, which is whether federal courts have the power directly to enjoin a sitting president um, all about the 1867 Supreme Court case, Mississippi versus Johnson. That old chestnut. That is indeed an old chestnut. And, uh, and, and then, you know, we'll probably have to spend a few minutes talking about Game of Thrones. Oh, did anything happen? Uh, all right, we'll, we'll get to Game of Thrones in due time. We are going to try to be quicker this time. We have some competing obligations today. So this will and, be... And, and you're not that interested anyway. I and mean, and, let's, and let's face it, you're, you're just passing the time while you're on the elliptical. As, as, as Harry Doyle says on Major League, in case you haven't noticed... And judging by the attendance, 
You, you haven't. haven't. <laughs> well, actually, judging by the attendance, we're doing all right. But it's probably just downloads that no one's Seriously, listening to. Seriously, I was going to say they, 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 yeah. they, they, we lost them at. You know, it should be a home run when the when you land over the wall. I think that's probably right. Just if you're curious, uh, the download stats, at least off of iTunes. Um, Steadily north of six thousand, uh, which wow. is great. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, that's a lot and, of and, that's a lot of bots. And, and Bobby, starting next Wednesday, we have 50, 50 some odd new supplicants. Oh, students! One L's. Got to change my syllabus to make this required <laughs> listening. <laughs> All right, or at least required download. Let's try to earn listening listeners the old-fashioned way with really sharp analysis. So, Afghanistan, President Trump's speech, Bobby, go. All right, here's what's important for, for this podcast, in my opinion. The part where he says he's going to uh, tweak the rules of engagement. He actually used ROE. as He didn't say ROE, but he said rules of engagement. We're going to loosen it up. It's all part of the general theme, which we've seen previously from the president, of pushing war-related decision-making to the generals, which is to say out of the White House. His generals. His generals, leaving it in their hands, which we've noted previously, you know, it, it's potential, it's something you can look at both as a policy choice about where the level of decision making on certain targeting decision gets made. It's also potentially a political maneuver that preserves some space in case things go south. As we saw with the ground operation in Yemen early in the Trump presidency, which the president very quickly distanced himself from any connection to that and, and criticized uh, to a certain extent those who did get involved. Here's what I want to say about this, though. Um, first and foremost, I want to say that regardless of how he may have delivered the speech and whether we like the direction he's going or not, I do think it is a very good thing for a president of the United States to be reminding the country that we are, in fact, still at war in Afghanistan, that this conflict's been going on with people paying increasingly little attention over time as we just get used to it and it doesn't touch most Americans' lives because most Americans aren't in contact with someone who's serving there in recent time. Um, so I think that on the whole, it's a very healthy thing that there is a primetime address on the topic exclusively of Afghanistan. I think we probably agree on that. Totally. Um, now, it, now, but this is not what, what, what then-candidate Trump had promised, right? I mean, then-candidate Trump had made a big deal out of getting us out of Afghanistan. Well, and isn't it interesting that, you know, here's a guy who never changes his mind or, or no, let me let me rephrase that never acknowledges <laughs> never acknowledges well, that he well, felt one go. way I accept that. and then uh and then he did so here he says look i got i i listened and i and i was persuaded otherwise i think it is a sign you know bannon's declining influence and then his departure this is the sort of thing that the uh the banning camp i think was you know very hostile to, and you see that in the Breitbart, you know, pile on that immediately versus, followed. Versus John Kelly, right? I mean, versus the influence of someone like John Kelly right. as chief of staff, right? And, and McMaster as as John the, Kelly, who lost a son, right, in Afghanistan. Yeah. So this, so this is all kind of interesting at that level. Legal issues. There, there's something briefly to say, perhaps, about the decision that he's going to send some more additional troops. Every now and then, you you saw this late in Iraq where people would say, "Well, hold on, do you need any kind of fresh authorization? If you're, you know, is this some kind of new?" war powers question when you increase troop loads. I certainly don't think so. I think if you think that we're there, whatever you thought with or without the surge in terms of the domestic law authorization for what we're doing, uh, surging some three, 4,000 troops, whatever it's going to be, I don't think moves the needle to me. Do you, what do you think, Steve? I don't think the surge by itself moves the needle. I do think, I, and I think Beck Engber was pointing this out on Twitter last night. I, I do think that there's some question because of some of the looser language in the speech about whether any of the targeting uh, priorities are going to change and whether with a change in targeting priorities, you're going to start having the potential for uses of force against groups that have less of a connection to al-Qaeda or the Afghan Taliban and Bobby, therefore, are less easily brought under the, the auspices of the 2001 authorization for the military force. There, there's nothing in the speech that compels that result, but I think it is going to be something we're going to have to keep an eye on. So that's a good segue to the the, the topic I indicated a moment ago I really wanted to dwell on, the rules of engagement. Uh, I think it's very important to put some context around this. So uh, let's go back to uh, about 2014, the Obama administration. As, as listeners will recall, President Obama was quite eager, understandably eager, to uh, want to be able to preside over the uh, the end of that conflict. If, if conditions had worked out, that was a goal that the administration was plainly driving towards. Conditions didn't work out. That ended up not being possible. But as they reduced uh, troop numbers there, they also were pulling back during the second Obama term. They also were pulling back on uh, the circumstances in which U.S. forces were allowed to use force, where where ground troops could be, what air, where and when air power could be deployed. Um, 
kind of summarizing where we were in 2014, which was sort of the, the peak of constraint, if you will. Uh, at that time, as the Washington Post and others reported, the U.S. military could strike targets on the ground basically in three scenarios. You could do it always to protect any U.S. personnel on the ground. You could do it to go after the remnants of al-Qaeda. And you could do it to protect Afghan forces, pre- protecting them when they faced imminent danger. So if there's an Afghan unit that's under assault from the Taliban, you could bring in close air support. Uh, what you didn't have on that model A, you weren't conducting air operations just where you've detected Taliban formations or Taliban leadership. And and B, you didn't uh, embed or have ground forces on patrol, certainly not with conventional Afghan forces. There was always still some embedding, especially of our special operators, with their special mission forces. Um, By summer of last year, still under the Obama administration, President Obama, faced with a a patently declining security environment in Afghanistan, began loosening this up. Again, as reported in the media, uh, there were changes at the time. It wasn't that they opened up the uh, aperture so that you could deploy air power against the Taliban or wherever, um, but there was more ability to uh, put forces, ground controllers in particular, out into the field. There was more discretion to engage in close air support for U.S. and Afghan forces. Um, so in light of that shift, which took place last year, and in light of the fact that as early as May of this year, the Trump administration was already talking about uh, widening the aperture, how then should we understand this president's statement last night that he's going to expand the rules of in- engagement? Um, there's two dimensions I suspect are at work here, and they're interesting and they're very important. I don't think they present legal issues. Um, one is the question of which types of strikes, which circumstances require commanders in Afghanistan to actually uh, reach back to Washington or to the Pentagon to get either SECDEF approval or even presidential approval. Clearly, some of that, I think, has already changed. Um, We don't know, at least I don't think we know from the public record, what exactly the circumstances are that currently require that sort of approval. But whatever it is, it's a safe bet that that authority is going to be pushed out to the field further. And then separate from that, there's the question of in what circumstances will we use air power? Will we just go back to sort of a straight up, you know, a full-fledged law of armed conflict model with no other policy constraints about when you target Taliban forces? That is, are we going to target them from the air wherever we find them? Um, That seems quite possible, Steve. And and notice that's an air power question that um, doesn't, to a direct extent, depend on having a massive ground force change. Now, I do think there will be a ground force change, too. I think you're going to see um, more willingness to lean forward with U.S. forces working with other Afghan forces beyond the the special operators we're used to expand uh, operating with. This is going to result in more risk to our troops from uh, you know Afghan uh, forces turning their guns on, on the occasional uh, American they find in their midst. That will probably happen more. Um, and, and so the upshot of this is you're going to have a lot more application of American combat power. But I don't think any of it, ex- you know, flagging the caveat you raise, which is maybe we'll go after other groups that may be present in Afghanistan. Uh, conceptually, that does sound like it could raise an AUMF question to me. I can't think of any group that I can that I know about that's operating in Afghanistan uh, beyond al-Qaeda, the Taliban, Haqqani Network, Islamic State, and then a, a few other sort of Haqqani-like, uh, you know, offshoots um, that we're not already using force yeah. or have have been treating as an associated force of either al-Qaeda or the Taliban. So I don't think I see an AUMF question arising there. No, I mean, so I guess I just want to be clear. I don't, I don't see the AUMF question on the face of this apparent shift, right? I think the question is just, you know, how much of the language in the speech last night when the president talks about going after terrorists was rhetorical. Do right, you see it as sort of a, an echo of the sort of the fall 2001, this war on terrorism starts with al-Qaeda and the Taliban, but it's a war against all international terrorism? And that's my concern, right? I mean, as, as I think folks who have listened to prior discussions on this podcast, no doubt will remember, right? My big concern about the AUMF is sort of it being stretched beyond, it, basically it being, it being sort of transmogrified into a, you know, terrorism authorization and not just an al-Qaeda and affiliate authorization. Uh, I'm not saying we're there. I'm just saying that I think that's going to be the real sort of legal thing to watch, right, coming out of this. In contrast to what could have been the much more alarming prospect of one of the earlier floated uh, proposals, which was to ramp up contractor involvement in Afghanistan. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. How could we not have talked about that? Right. So, so, I mean, in one sense, you know... 
the last thing I would ever do is say the president deserves kudos for his speech last night. But you know, this to me, this strikes me as an entirely adult. Yeah, reaction no, I to the problem in Afghanistan in a way where some of what, what we were hearing in the last couple of weeks would not have been. I agree. I actually think they're look. I'm I'm obviously you know I have a slightly different, not that much different, but slightly different perspective than you do on this. But I think he actually deserves. Notwithstanding that there were plenty of elements I didn't like, and it's sort of the, the crassness of, of somehow it's delivered, and the and the sort of the disparagement of you know the role of diplomacy and, and economic aid and other things, but um, on the whole, this is well within the realm of indeed it's quite like as many people <laughs> point out, it's not terribly different from what we've been doing for the past right. four presidential right. terms, and and it it stands in a context in which there were some crazy ideas. Yeah, yeah. No, no, there. right. The, the headline is is. You know, with sort of tweaking at the margins, but more largely of the same. And you know what else is worth commenting on? This seems to have been the result of an actual deliberative process. So isn't that something? I mean, I will say, like, it seems like interagency process is something that John Kelly has, you know, not on not on things like Charlottesville or other topics that matter quite a lot or banning transgenders from serving in the military. Um, But um, interagency process seems to at least be making some some come back. Look, I think that there's two. There's sort of because also our next our next topic about Guantanamo also involves. Oh yeah, right? no, exactly. And, and this this will be a segue for that. Um, segue alert. Segue alert. There are two. There are two administrations at work here. There's the collective executive branch functioning, which in, of course includes at its apex the president, yep. but includes all the other pieces, and it's functioning often in maybe now increasingly often in a relatively conventional way. And then there's the rhetorical tweet presidency that no one, and occasionally the open mic presidency, that's just Donald Trump when he's communicating directly to people. And and there's no, the executive branch no filter. d- filters out at that and, point. And so the president has a rally, I think, later today. I mean, I think one of the things to Phoenix. watch for, in, well, this is he, you watch for the possible use of the pardon power. There's tonight. also that, as a former Ninth Circuit clerk, Joe Arpaio is just a, a jobs program for civil rights frequent, lawyers. Frequent litigants. Um, <laughs> Defendant, but it seems to me that you know one of the things to watch for is not just what happens going forward in Afghanistan, but what happens going forward in the president's own public statements. Does he run away from last night's speech on Twitter and in rallies, or does he actually keep to the? Does he keep to the mess? Does he stay on message? Yeah, I think that's going to be really interesting. That will be one a a closing thought. So your observation about fear about the the possible spread to uh, groups that really aren't linked to uh, the the original. 2001 AUMF, I think the place where you're going to see it won't be Afghanistan. I think the place where that sort of risk is highest is in Africa. That's right. That's clearly right. And and just color me as someone who's skeptical that this president, as opposed to his national security staff, is going to care all that much about, you know, novel or, or hard to defend interpretations of the AUMF. So we'll just have to see, you know, how that plays out. Well, so speaking of the interagency process, as you <laughs> mentioned, our second topic is the uh, the revival of the much anticipated uh, sooner or later we'll get it executive order. This that, is by the way for scoring at home. This is now the third draft executive order on Guantanamo that we have discussed on this podcast, which is something. And, and you know, and we I don't want to belittle it because that suggests that there's trial balloons going out there, there's pushback, there's revetting. This is good. This is this is but better to what than. End? Well, that's a separate question, but I, I think for I think we can all agree that oh, it's a little, better than like a knee jerk. We want process, yeah, yeah. and we're getting some process here. So here here are the facts as we were told on Friday last week by Charlie Savage and Adam Goldman in the New York Times. They said that about three weeks ago, from that point, uh, the president had been poised to sign an executive order. Now. We've been predicting since, you know, since Trump was elected, one of the first things he would surely do would be to revoke President Obama's executive order uh, directing that policy shall be to close Guantanamo. Uh, and the only interesting question, that, that's a foregone conclusion. The only interesting question is what, el- what are their kind of bells and whistles? You know, will they, A, critical question, would they get rid of or meaningfully alter the periodic review board process? Which is a separate executive order, right? Mm-hmm. So would they revoke the the PRB executive order separate from the closed Guantanamo right. executive order? The PRBs being the mechanism for those who are at Guantanamo and who have not prevailed or for whatever reason didn't pursue a habeas litigation. Um, how do they ever get out? Well, they get out by the periodic review board process in some cases. So what would be, you know, would that continue on? Can I say one more word about yeah. PRBs before we yeah, move on? Yeah, And the important. key for folks understand about the PRB process. I know we've talked about it before. The PRB process is not asking whether the detainee is lawfully detained. The PRB process is saying whether, based on the intelligence information available to the U.S. government, it is the U.S. government's view that the detainee poses a continuing threat 
to the United States or whether his release is actually consistent, right, with the foreign policy interests of the United States government. Right. So, so to release someone under the PRB uh, is no way an acknowledgement that they weren't supposed to be held or weren't lawfully held to begin with. It's an, it, although it could be, but it almost always isn't. Instead, it's a claim that whatever was the case before, given— This guy's no longer a threat. Right. Or he's either no longer a threat or given what the receiving country has promised they will do by way of, right. of surveillance and protection, we feel comfortable putting the problem into their hands. And, it's, and I, I, just, I mean, the, the PRB statistics are actually pretty impressive insofar as, you know, if you think about the the folks going through the PRBs are actually like the last folks at Guantanamo, yeah. right? And, you yeah. know, I, and, I, and a lot of them have been filtered out on that basis. Correct. And that, of course, is a reason why there are some who would pressure the administration to get rid of this. Yep. That, and so it's yep. what it's a it's either a bug or a feature depending on your perspective exactly. on Guantanamo. Exactly. So we we remain unclear on this, but we get a little glimpse here. So here's here's what we were told: the order. It's all quite vague, but the report said that the order that was almost signed, um, the only feature we're really told about it was it would clearly authorize the use of Guantanamo going forward for al-Qaeda and Islamic State detainees. Now we're told that after the personnel shakeup in the chief of staff's office, the whole thing is kind of getting a second look. There's some there's some interagency vetting going on. It sounds like it's in the NSC process. Well, keep in mind, right, that John Kelly, right, was for a time the the you know the. Part of his billet was overseeing Guantanamo, yeah. so he, he actually has direct. He knows what he, he knows wherever he speaks. Um, so what's interesting is we get a little portrayal of three different drafts that are. You can almost picture the slide saying, "Here's option one, option two, option three. But from the description, they don't actually sound to me, Steve, like they're different really in any substantive way. It sounds. Well, I'll let you judge. Here's here's what we're told. First, there's one that says we're going to use Guantanamo for Al Qaeda and the Islamic State. There's another version that I gather is more or less that, but it would clarify or state explicitly that the SECDEF uh, can bring newly captured terrorists there. Now, I that sounds like the same thing to me. Yes. We, we must be talking about, sure, it's the Trump administration. We're talking about uh, bringing new people in there. Yes. No, no doubt about that. So that... I think one and two is more of a stylistic change. And, and, and three strikes me as more of the process-driven one, where you have more of a PRB process built into it. Right. So what we're told about the third option is it's the same, but the uh, – the, the, well, two, two variations that are mentioned in the article. One, that the Secretary of Defense is to develop criteria for who can be held, as opposed to presumably having the order itself say those who can be held are al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, Taliban, and associated forces – uh, on this model, maybe the maybe there'd be a little more play depending on what Mattis might want to do with it, which goes to your concern about the scope of the AMF. But yep. we'll set that aside. Then there's an explicit reference, apparently, in the third option to the continuation of the PRBs. What's interesting there is what it implies about the other options. Is the idea right. that PRBs is only in one of the options on the table? Well, so 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 this is what I want to say. So so I think this, uh, you know, Charlie, it's 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 good reporting. I think this is not a story. Um, I, I think it's not a story until and unless the president actually signs an executive order because we've already seen two different prior drafts that were floated and not signed. Um, and more to the point, I think the executive order itself, when it's signed, may not be a story, right? Because it may not do anything. Like, to me, right, the, the three things I'm watching for are, one, are any new detainees actually being sent to Guantanamo? Indeed. It hasn't happened yet. Two, is the executive order going to leave intact or repeal President Obama's PRB executive order? That's huge. Right? And three, is the executive order going to leave intact or repeal the third of President Obama's detention executive orders, the Black Site order? Right. And so the earlier drafts had been most controversial for having in them language that would revive the option of CIA-administered detention. That caused a lot of blowback, I, I believe, including from the agency. Yes. I, and I think it's conspicuous that you don't hear a mention of that well, and, well, and healthy. Right. You don't see a mention I, of I agree it here. But so imagine that we get an executive order, Bobby, that's quiet as to all three of these topics, right? That right. says you can bring new detainees to Guantanamo, but doesn't say, you know, you must, you shall, whatever. Yeah. Um, it just says we're not closing it. We're going to use it. We're going to use it, right? So it repeals the closure order, right? And reaffirms the commitment to using it, blah, 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 right. blah, blah. It's kind of status quo in that case, I'd say. That's the thing, right? And so I don't think that would be news. Like, that wouldn't be news. But I think it's I think it's very important to have articles like this. And I'm glad they wrote this because for the same reason I was glad that the earlier uh, yeah. trial balloons generated attention, because then you get people like us and others who start digging into it. And if there's something that's mentioned that's problematic, right, you, you get at back. least a chance of a little bit of pushback. I guess what I'm saying is I don't see anything in the in the the three as described by the article. I don't see anything in any of the three variations that strikes me as 
radically problematic as compared to the problem that we still have Guantanamo and 41 detainees in indefinite military Well, detention. I certainly, I, well, I will agree with you. <laughs> uh, look, I think as long as we're fighting wars and killing these people, I think having military detention of some of them is still okay. But setting that aside, um, I do th- agree with you that there's nothing at all problematic in the three that are mentioned here, except insofar as there is this implication that maybe the PRBs continue only under one of these three options. So I'll just take this chance for the benefit of anyone who's listening who cares to say keep that the PRBs. You, well, you, you've got to keep the PRBs. This is law of war detention. If you don't have some kind of mechanism like this, you're asking for a world of friction and difficulty. Uh, and if, perhaps judicial pushback. Uh, oh, that yeah, exactly what I mean. Like the, So friction and difficulty, one might say, so what? There's always complainers. Well, it's different yeah. when that complaining filters through into the form of, of the Maybe judicial. Absolutely. And I think you're going to have a litigation problem. So, so but, but I guess all I'm saying is, like, none of the – the article did not suggest that the executive order would repeal the PRB nope, executive nope. order. Just, we're just speculating. Right? So, so, so even if there's no PRB language in the executive order, to me, that's fine. Right? Because that – It leaves in place the status quo. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I agree. I agree. It doesn't have to say it affirmatively. The facts on the ground are what matter here. Exactly. All right. Um, Speaking of yeah. Guantanamo. Yeah. So uh, our, our our friend and colleague, uh, Judge Scott Silliman. Is going to have some more free time. It, well, he's been told he can't partake, partake in this because of uh, statements he'd said before he was a judge. Steve, are you surprised by this outcome? No. And, or tell, tell, tell our good listeners <laughs> what exactly happened. All right. So so if you if you don't remember this from a couple weeks ago or if you're you're new to the podcast, hello, where have you been? <laughs> nice um, to meet you. So, so separate from the Guantanamo detainees, we have the ongoing military commissions where there are three ongoing prosecutions that are still in their pretrial phases. Um, in the 9-11 trial, by far the biggest and most important of the military commission trials until now and going forward, um, the government had taken an interlocutory appeal of a trial court decision throwing out two of the lesser charges to the Intermediate Appeals Court, the Court of Military Commission Review. That court had reinstated the charges, reversing the trial court um, over the objection of the defendants that Judge Silliman should have recused because in statements he made before he was put on the Court of Military Commission Review, he showed bias against the defendants by suggesting that he thought they were guilty. Um, Judge Silliman rejected the request to recuse. The defendants uh, sought a writ of mandamus from the D.C. Circuit. We talked briefly about the problems I have with the D.C. Circuit's mandamus jurisprudence and the high bar it sets in these cases. But also, Bobby, we talked about how recusal might be different because there is plenty of settled law in recusal. Sure enough, one week after oral argument, um, the D.C. Circuit handed down this very terse, yeah, perfunctory, seven pa- perfunctory seven-page Procurium opinion, manda- you know, recusal mandamus cases are always procurium. No one wants to, you know, no, no one wants to sign the opinion. We don't want to personalize it. That's right. Um, and saying that, yeah, Judge Solomon should have recused. That the, you know, wholly apart from statutory or constitutional concerns, the rules for military commissions themselves co- required him to recuse based upon his prior statements just because it would not be possible for an objective observer to look at those statements and not have concerns that Judge Shillman had formed an opinion as to the guilt of the defendants. Um, seems pretty simple. Yeah, in fact, it, it probably, uh, I think everything about it was crafted in a way that's meant to make it look like, look, this, this is a simple case. The rule is what it is. Some of the language actually said, look, there, there's arguments you could make, but at the end of the day, the rule says if you've made public statements, this suggests you have a view. And, and here's, a, here's a quote that seems to you know, assume guilt, uh, and, and I think perfectly understandably so. Uh, there's, there's, it turns out there's a whole lot of us that would not be eligible yeah. to preside at the, uh, at the proceeding on that basis. Oh, listen, I mean, I think I have said publicly that if the 9-11 defendants had been tried in a civilian court, they'd be dead by now. Exactly. I right? feel the same way. So and you so, and I shall never sit, apparently. Well, not on the 9-11 trial anyway. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I don't think I'll be sitting on anyone's trial well, as also, a judge. There's but also that, right. <laughs> so, something tells me that, that while I'm challenging how judges are confirmed to the CMCR, I'm not going to go point it to the CMCR. Can you imagine we're charging the jury and we just start, we'd start rambling about baseball and other things. This, we have no business nope. having robes. This is why we're law professors. Yeah. Um, but so I will say, I, you know, I, I said this before. And I think that the the decision drives this point home. I don't think I don't think you're going to agree with this statement, Bobby. But I just think the CMCR's track record is so bad. Like this is yet another example of the DC Circuit on a non-de novo review. Right, recusal is not de novo. Yeah. Right, um, mandamus with such a high bar 
slapping down the CMCR in a way that's going to only further prolong and extend these incredibly prolonged and extended pretrial proceedings. Tell me this. What happens? So there's there's someone taken off the bench there. Is there going to be some effort to find somebody new, so or do is, they just so, go forward shorthanded? So here's where things get interesting. Is there a quorum problem or anything like that? So first of all, um, so a little bit of Fed Court's doctrine for a second. Um, the presence of a recused judge, even though without him there would still have been a quorum, invalidates the decision, right? That is to say, you can't say you you, you can't just subtract him and say there's still two. That's a quorum, um, right? It's the kind of structural error that requires vacating the mm. prior decision and reconstituting a panel. Now. A quorum could be two. You could reconstitute the panel with two, but there's a problem with the other two judges on the panel. Is They're this both, your thing about my military thing about judges being duty, appointed? Yes, this is my thing about active duty military officers serving on the CMCR. I can tell this is an important point, and if I can stay awake while you explain it, <laughs> no. I know. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to do it now. I'm just going to point out that there is a separate pending petition for writ of mandamus in the D.C. Circuit challenging the other two judges. And, with, and, and here's the thing. There are only five judges on the CMCR right now. Without those three or the other one who's a military officer, you can't constitute a quorum. This is such a mess. Ha, have they? Has it is C- incorrect. Has the C? Oh, incorrect. I love it. <laughs> has the CMCR rendered any decisions that didn't go on one way or the other to the DC Circuit? Sure. I mean, it's rendered a couple like in Cutter, right? It had that weird personal jurisdiction okay. decision, right? I, I guess, guess the question is like, what do we what do we get? What's the bang for the buck considering how much the DC Circuit no, no. engages zero, on zero, zero. I mean, it's, I think the better way to put it is there is not a single important merits decision that the CMCR has handed down the military commission cases that the DC Circuit has affirmed under de novo review. Well, in here I'm not talking about whether they always agree. It's just like, what's the point of having this this additional intermediate step if the DC Circuit's going to weigh in on all the important stuff anyways? So, I mean, the only thing I would say is there's a weird problem with interlocutory appeals, right? Which is that there's no mechanism for the defendant to object if he loses an interlocutory appeal um, in the DC, uh, in the CMCR, and then it goes to the DC Circuit. That's why we have all these mandamus cases, right? So the insulation is the high standard of review in mandamus. I see. Although in this particular case, now we've got uh, we have uh, some we have some music coming. Yeah, I don't outside. know where it's coming from. There's, there, I wonder if listeners can hear this. I can. Can you tell what it is, Steve? No. <laughs> well, anyways, we've got a soundtrack unintentionally in our office. We'll try to ignore it. Steve, tell me about enjoining Wait, the president. It, it sounds like um, uh, Nora Jones. Oh, you know, that's not bad. I love old Nora Jones. Is that Nora Jones? I think she's from Texas, too. All right, that's well, good. Well, it's well, hopefully you can't hear this on the podcast. But, <laughs> okay. You know. um, so anyway, so we'll see what happens with the CMCR. They now have a, a quorum problem. Pivoting. Segway. Segway. Right? So uh, we talked last week about this, and we sort of ran wait, out of Wait, wait, it's not a segue if we just say pivot. Right? I mean, doesn't segue suggest that we've said something clever that logically connects up with the next topic? How about there is no segue? There's no segue here. Move along. All right. Um, or I guess the segue is from a writ of mandamus to, to an injunction, which is a There you go. There okay. You go. I can, I, I'm with you. Go. All right. So this is not really a national security specific topic, but it could become one, right? There's now this interesting nerdy litigation development going on about whether federal courts can directly enjoin the president. Now, I'm sure we have listeners saying, wait, like, Guantanamo habeas cases, the, you know, it's Boumediene versus Bush. It's Razul versus Bush, right? Harry Truman in the steel seizure case. I mean, what the heck? Ah, steel seizure. That was actually Commerce Secretary Sawyer. Aha. Uh-huh. And there's a reason for that. So the, the short version is there's this super cryptic 1867 Supreme Court decision called Mississippi versus Johnson. And for folks who know a little bit of Reconstruction history, this was the first of a series of major cases where southern states and or southern officials tried to challenge the very controversial Military Reconstruction Act, right? The, the parts of the radical re, uh, Republicans' reconstruction program that basically subjected the South to military rule. Here we sit in military district number five, Steve. District number five. Um, I just thought about Mamba number five. <laughs> these, these things these things have never been paired before, but That's go true. ahead. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so uh, Mississippi versus Johnson was the first of five cases trying to basically challenge military reconstruction. And I think the most important point for people to take away is the Supreme Court wanted nothing to do with the legality of reconstruction. I think because they were suspicious, right? They had just decided ex parte Milligan, a case well known to national security law mm-hmm. followers, where they had basically said you can't can't have martial rule. You can't have military rule where the civilian courts are open and their processes are unobstructed. 
the civil governments in the South were functioning. We just didn't like them, right? At least in large parts of the South. Um, so the Supreme Court finds increasingly clever ways to duck the merits, starting in Mississippi versus Johnson by saying, hey, Mississippi, you can't seek an injunction directly against the president. Right. It's somehow the, is the idea that this is infradig. This is beneath. It's too much of a direct clash of the of the offices. You can you can enjoin subordinate executive branch exactly. officials, but the president is somehow cloaked with a direct immunity from judicial compulsion. At the very least, right, that you should never enjoin the president where you could obtain the same relief right. by going after a lower official. Now, that's that sort of a try the less intrusive means. That makes a lot of sense. Which, by the way, Georgia immediately did. So then Georgia sues Secretary Stanton. Exactly. And the Supreme Court ducks that suit on political question grounds. Which is the way it really ought to work. Correct. Because if you don't have a political question problem, and then you read this, you can't enjoin the president uh, principle for all it's worth, then doesn't that insulate the president on matters where the president's in a position to make a, a determination in his own right uh, to do things that would contravene duly enacted law, that would be unconstitutional, and courts would just literally be powerless. The president could, in fact, do what he wanted. That's the whole concern. So, right. you know, Chief Justice Chase has some reasons why he thinks it would be problematic. Um, you know, David Curry, the late great University of Chicago law professor, has a fantastically cryptic takedown of Mississippi versus Johnson in his treatise, The Constitution and the Supreme Court. The basic gist of which is, it's just that just can't be what Chase meant, right? That it just proves far too much that there are other contexts where we actually routinely issue coercive relief that acts directly against the president. Yeah. The formality here just isn't a constitutional problem. So the idea is he was that Chase was really just trying to dress up under a particular doctrinal theory what amounted to a political question type concern. And, about how on this particular issue, we shouldn't get involved in trying to tell the And kick the plan down the road, right? Yeah. So then in Georgia versus Stanton, they say this really is a political question. We're not going to decide it until we have a proper party. That leads to ex parte McCardle, right, mm -hmm. where you've got a habeas petition with a southern newspaper editor who was thrown in military prison for, you know, the horrible crime of publishing, you know, lies about Reconstruction um, with that whole jurisdictional cluster, you know what, Right. So I think, you know, the, 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 what, the bottom line here is Mississippi versus Johnson, if read literally, says courts lack the power to enjoin the president. Right. But um, look at U.S. versus Nixon. Right. Where the Supreme Court issued a subpoena or up, affirmed the power of the federal courts issued a subpoena ducus tecum to the president. Yeah. So there's clear there's. Yeah. No, I, I, I tend to agree with you. And I and I also would think it important to underscore that it's really not a uh, sort of a partisan, it shouldn't be a partisan sensitive thing. This isn't about just Donald Trump. There are any number of things that Barack Obama did that conservatives yeah. didn't like um, that could have, in theory, implicated this same type of argument. It seems to me more of just a basic rule of law point about the subordination of the executive branch ultimately within its proper sphere right. to the rule of law and the constitutional order. And so I, I wrote a post on just security about two weeks ago where I said, listen, it's not that we don't have constitutional concerns about interfering with the president, right? We do. But that since Mississippi versus Johnson, the Supreme Court has recast and refashioned those concerns as the absolute immunity doctrine, right? In Nixon versus Fitzgerald in 1982, yeah. we actually now have a far more analytically coherent principle protecting the very separation of powers concerns Chief Justice Chase was worried about in Mississippi, right? It's absolute immunity. Absolute immunity would not bar an injunction that was otherwise appropriate, right, against a sitting president. This sounds right to me. And, and I will add that, uh, you know, our newest justice, Neil Gorsuch, uh, strikes me as the kind of jurist who has the kinds of concerns about overweening uh, yeah. government power who would be very interested in making sure there isn't this sort of, uh, oh, do what you want sort of space for the executive branch. And I can imagine, should the question ever come there, you know, some people would assume that, well, he's going to be Trump's guy. Oh, I don't think so at all. I don't Certainly know. Not I mean, on this. So, so the two cases where it's come up so far, right, are the Emoluments Clause suit against President Trump, where I don't think that we're going to get to that because there are other ways There's to plenty of other ways to get rid of um, that. And the Twitter suit, right? And the Twitter suit's interesting because in the Twitter case, it's hard to imagine who the inferior official is against whom you could obtain the requisite relief if the president really is the one typing out these tweets on no, his right. phone. No, right. No, it seems to go directly to him. So, so we'll see what happens. Um, one last point, if I may, before we go on. Yes. Andrew Johnson. <laughs> so there's no question in my mind that he was a racist, right? That he had very sort of 
19th century antebellum Southern views about the institution of slavery, right, and about the relative equality or lack thereof of members of different races. His constitutional arguments. I'm sorry, I can't resist. He said Southern views. Those views were not just Southern during that time. Uh, I'm sorry. Right? Okay, and he I, I want to was, spread the blanket of blame more broadly. That's fine. If listen, you know. If, but but yes, your point. I agree. He he was uh, he was sympathetic to the culture of the old South, including the race elements. Okay, but w- w- whether his motives were impure, his constitutional law objections to a lot of what Congress is doing during Reconstruction. Oh yeah, have been vindicated by history. Yeah, look at his control over officers. Right, uh, Myers versus the U.S. is yes. basically a you shouldn't have impeached Andrew Johnson opinion by Chief Justice Taft. Yeah, but look at Mississippi versus Johnson. Johnson vetoed the Military Reconstruction Acts. Johnson was vehemently opposed to the Military Reconstruction Acts, and yet Johnson sends his attorney general to argue that the Supreme Court lacks the power to enjoin him from enforcing the statutes he thinks are unconstitutional. So is, does that mean that Andrew Johnson was sort of like a modern president who's policing the powers of his own office, even on an issue he doesn't actually want to support? I, mean, I don't want to make that claim holistically, because I'm not exactly, yeah. I don't know the full canon of Johnson's work, yeah. but at least in this episode, he was, you know, he, he defended the prerogative of the president, right? Right. In a case in which he was absolutely on all fours with the plaintiffs. Right. Why did, so why didn't he sandbag it? Question, uh, who was his attorney general and, and did that person – is this an example of a not very unitary executive where Johnson's DOJ was more sympathetic with uh, the Republicans in Congress who wanted militarized reconstruction? So um, it might have been the only – so it's true, as folks I think will know, that Congress tried to force Johnson to keep most of Lincoln's cabinet – but the attorney general is an exception. Henry Stanberry was Johnson's appointee. And so I actually, th- and it's pretty clear, I think, from the papers that this was not the attorney general going off on a lark, that this was with the president's direct instructions. So just a random footnote about like huh. times when presidents have really asserted the institutional prerogative of their office, whether correctly or otherwise, even against very strongly held policy preferences on the merits. That's interesting. That. I'm I'm fascinated by that. I wonder if there's anybody out there listening who's a uh, you know a particularly well-read historian of the era. If you have some insight into whether that really was sort of Johnson sort of like defending his office in sort of a you know very modern way, or if instead there's some other like, angle yeah. to it, I can't imagine what it might be. Well, if, if there is, I'd love to hear it. So send us email. Yeah, indeed. All right. All right. Well, gosh, Steve, is there anything else we could talk about today that? Uh, Let's talk about Game of Thrones. Yeah, I think I think we should talk about Game of Thrones. So if you don't, if you haven't yet watched, uh, what is it, episode six, six. of season seven, um, you know, go watch it now. All right, I have a phrase. Okay, well, a discreet pause. We're done. Pause. All right, spoiler, All right. spoilers on. Okay, trigger, uh, trigger warning. How or about should I say ice dragon warning? Uh, here's what I think. We basically watched a whole episode about a botched rendition. Yep, That's it was exactly a, right. it was a rendition. <laughs> Uh, it was sort of a mashup of, of a rendition operation with Ocean's God Eleven. Gone horribly awry. And the whole thing was great TV. Although, although I should say gone horribly awry. It never made sense in the first exactly. place. No, the, the whole thing proved to be as every bit as dumb, if not dumber. As we knew it would be. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one thought I want to get out there right away. I want to share my crazy theory. Okay, so there's this scene where Beric Dondarrion and Jon Snow are, are you know, sharing this sort of vague... There's a lot of, like, buddy like yeah. buddy comedy in there's the a, episode. I, I thought, uh, you know, Tormund and, uh, and Clegane were, were great together. Good, <laughs> good uh, vibes there. Um, you were with Brienne of Toth? <laughs> oh, you do know her. Um, so they're having this conversation about, you know, why have they been brought back by the Lord of Light repeatedly? And, and Beric says very portentously, well, it's, you know, it's about fighting death. It's about fighting the enemy. It, but then when kind of pressed, like, yeah, John says, yeah, but then all, in that case, this is a waste of time. We're all, all going to die. Di- we're all going to die. What's, what's the freaking point? He's like, no, we got to try it anyways. I, all I know is we were brought back for a reason. And, you know, interesting that you were brought back to only us, no one else. And here we are. And, and here we are on this mission. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is why. Well, that kind of tapped into something. I've always wondered about the whole Lord of Light subplot. So Lord of Light is a character on the show who never physically appears, doesn't manifest directly. That we know of. 
Well, right, that's true. So this gets to my point. It, the Lord of Lights kind of portrayed somewhat ambiguously, but generally speaking, on the side of like fighting the Night King and trying to help the, the the forces of humanity against it. But then there's always unsettling, weird stuff. You know, burnings of people, the the shadow assassin yeah, that Melisandre yeah. gives birth to. I've always been very uncomfortable with it, and also suspicious that you know George R. R. Martin's probably not the biggest fan. I, I have the impression maybe of organized religion. Anyways, right. certainly the 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 seven model doesn't come in for. Very very good treatment. <laughs> and so you wonder, like, is the Lord of Light really a good force for good, you know, as we would perceive it? Maybe Dondarrion's right. Maybe the Lord of Light did bring Jon Snow and Beric Dondarrion back repeatedly to engineer this moment. Because what is the fruit of this stupid-ass rendition mission? An ice dragon who can burn down the wall. Yep. It's the <laughs> it's it's a strategically dramatic turnabout uh, in favor of the Night King. And it seems to me that if indeed the Lord of Light's been engineering things, then I think the Lord of Light is not on the side of the living. It's quite possible. So so I agree with all of that. I mean, the the cataclysmic consequences of giving a dragon. So so we, we speculated a couple of weeks ago, like, oh, they're going to find a way to go around the wall because right, the, right. the, the, the Shivering Sea is going to freeze over. They don't need to now. They can burn the freaking wall down. Just go up there and blast it. Repeat. And that's assuming that that uh, the dragon can still breathe fire. Well, what would be the point of having? I mean, what? So you, yeah, you know. yeah. All yeah. right. So yeah. I, I have two really quick observations about this episode, which I did not like. Oh, um, I'm so glad. Oh my gosh. So the first is my concern that the destruction of the space-time continuum was going to lead to absurd results has manifested. Okay. Right. John is there. They're minutes away from being surrounded by the White Walkers and the White Army, right? He dispatches Gendry to run on foot <laughs> back Gendry, to the wall. Who literally had just said, "I've never seen snow before." Right. Wait, hold on. That's fine. I mean, I'll, I'll suspend that reality. How? Let, let, let's ballpark. How long did it take Gendry to run back right to the to the wall? Let's just say at least a couple hours. Yeah. Right. Okay. Then they have to send a raven to Dragonstone, right? <laughs> then Danny has to read the message. Then she has to get the dragons, get on them. And have someone sew a super badass like winter weather queen gear. I assume she had that in her collection. I guess. I don't um, know where they're keeping their tailor, by the way. But well, whatever. especially because she's wearing a different outfit when they're back at Eastwatch after the after the battle. Where'd yeah, that come from? Yeah. You know, did, did Drogon have a have a luggage compartment? That's right. Um, but 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 hold on a second. Then Danny flies from Dragonstone all the way north of the Wall and somehow finds them on this one little rock in one little valley, right? That they spent days looking for. Yeah. No. It's and all in time to rescue them from the army that was already surrounding them when. You know, Gendry ran back to the wall. Uh, thus underscore my theme that it's increasingly plot-driven. Not plot-driven in the sense of like, hey, this is no, good. No, the plot is the everything. The plot is, is in control. Uh, there's this great book by John Scalzi called Red Shirts in which uh, – I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil it, and we'll talk about this some other occasion. But this sort of idea that like the plot literally is actually taken over right. and is actually controlling events in sort of a Deus Ex Machina that, kind of that's way. That's what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. Like like why are these things happening? Because the plot demands it. Yeah, right. No, it's now here's by the way when you're trapped on that little island. Um, there's one moment where uh, to to sink some zombies, uh, right. somebody swings the hammer. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, the hound. Yeah, swings the hammer to the. To the Too ice. bad they didn't spend all those hours sitting around doing that. Me- meth- methodically making sure that they had water around them. Or or like right or bring the little thing that Benjamin uses to like the little the little swinging mace. Can I just complain about the completely? Uh, I, I, I have one more complaint. Oh yeah, let's first. hear it. No, this, one. this might be the same one. So you go. So my other complaint is actually a deeper national security law complaint, Good. Right? right? Which is. That they didn't um, extradite the zombie? No. All right. Okay. Well, there's, <laughs> Sorry, you know, where, where's the torture convention when we need it? Yeah. Right? Um, no. So what was so so we haven't planned this, right? I'm just gonna. Yeah, I have no out. idea what you're gonna say. What was Meade's biggest mistake at Gettysburg? Hmm. Not pursuing the exactly, defeated enemy. Right. What was the Japanese biggest mistake at Pearl Harbor? Um, not, not launching the third wave. Following up. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Danny has. Three dragons. The Night King is standing oh, yeah. right there. Super agreed. Like, there's it. And, and everyone on the ground knows. And they actually had just said on the show, hey, this whole thing ends if you can get that guy. And, and right. there's Danny. Spoiler alert. Wave your arms. Point at that guy. Right. All point at right. him. John's looking at, at her lovingly. I'm like, John, point. You point know, at the Night King. Said, 
Fine. Land Drogon here to protect us. Send Viserion and Rhaegal to go get the Night King. Right. Or even better. Yeah. So she lands. They're they're dragging their their uh, rendition. Yeah. The guy's wearing the hoods. He's got the sensory <laughs> deprivation. The whole deal. They're dragging him on there. They're all piling up there. Couldn't one of them said, Oh, by the way, while you're here, use your three airstrike capacity. You know, your right. three nuclear powered dragons and, and blast that guy over there. He's on a horse. Where's he gonna go? Yeah. Like okay. So yes, he has a spear, but they didn't know. That. They did not. Know they didn't yet. know that at the time. No, it's it, and again the plot demanded it because the show can't go on if they had done what they should have done and would have done in those circumstances. But right, imagine, right? Imagine if that episode ended with a decapitation, yeah. with a dragon decapitation strike of the Night King. Ah, uh, that'd be fabulous. It it is what Jamie was trying to do to her. Yes. The prior episode. Yes. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, so, so it's not just that the whole. It's not just that the strategy is stupid. It's that the tactics were stupid. Yeah. Um. And did and did anyone think to bring you know any uh, dragon glass weapons? You no. Know, in this deal. Well, John. I mean, so you don't need dragon glass to kill the whites. You just need dragon glass to kill the white walkers. Right. And and John has long claw, which is Valyrian's deal. Yeah. So that was you know, right. maybe a few people, maybe some arrows, some dragon glass arrows. Well, right. So now that they have right, they just left. They 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 sailed from Dragonstone. What happened to all the dragon glass? Oh, supposedly. Oh, oh, we'll get to that later. I, I'm, I'm just, listen, it is a beautiful show. It is an amazing show. It's I will watch it religiously. Watch. Yeah. It has jumped the freaking shark. Well, I'm waiting for a big reveal on how the whole Lord of Light thing yeah. is actually a, a bad guy force that somehow, that's the real fire and ice, right? Or it's, there's two <sighs> fire and ice. You've got, you've got the Night King evil ice and you've got the Lord of Light evil fire. And then you've got sexy good guys, uh, Daenerys and John. Danny. Oh, I, I did not like it. That, that did not fit his character that he throws out this not. sort of fanboy term of endearment. Danny. And, and, and that he's like, all right, fine. You came to rescue me. Now I'll bend the knee. Yeah, good luck selling that back in the... Oh, one last observation. Um, the whole thing with the sword where Jorah is offered the sword and then he disclaims his inheritance. Uh, that solves the problem of what happens with Lady Mormont. Who's, who She stays in control. Of course she, which, Maybe which, she... I hope, Here's my new favorite... Lady Mormont wins the Game of Thrones. She takes the crown in the end. I could live with that because I'm tired of both Sansa and Arya. Oh, don't even get me started on All right. that lane. Well, on that note, yep. well, I All would right, just say um, this is an especially punchy episode for a slow <laughs> news week. Next week is our first week of classes. Maybe we'll spend some time next week talking about, like, you know, law school and, and advice for entering first-year law students and, and thoughts about teaching constitutional law in the, in the age of Trump. Okay, but no spoilers. Spoilers. Uh, Law school is hard. Here's my spoiler. All right. All right. So listen, everybody. Follow Bobby Chesney at at Bobby Chesney on Twitter. Steve Vladek at Steve underscore Vladek. The podcast itself is at NSL Podcast and NationalSecurityLawPodcast.com. If you haven't yet left us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, no no time like the present. Spread the word. Um, And, you know, we'll see you sometime between now and the next eclipse. (laughs) <laughs> oh, Austin, 2024. We'll be here. We're hosting. April 2024. Um, so until then, well, or until next week, stay safe <laughs> out there. Yes.